everyone, and welcome to another episode of Devs Talking. Uh, we've got a show tonight to talk about the metrics that matter to us, um, which are different than the metrics that matter to other people, I think, in many cases. So um, we're going to get into that in a few minutes. But first, let me uh, let me introduce uh, the co-host for tonight. We've got uh, the Jameses as usual. We've got James Thomas. Howdy. And James Spargo. Hello, hello. We've also got with us tonight David Nelson. That's me. And I am Kevin Hickey. Uh, so before we get started, a little housekeeping. Um, we are on the line with uh, an actual Devs Talking website. If you go to uh, podcast.devstalking.com, you can uh, see all of our episodes. Uh, you can play them direct from there if you don't want to subscribe through iTunes. But if you do want to subscribe through iTunes, please do and leave us a rating. Ratings help us get found by other people. The website's going to you know, get some more content. We're probably going to get some bios up there, maybe even some links to blogs and other things. But for right now, at least our episodes are there and you can find them and it's great. The other thing, before we get into our topic about metrics, I wanted to uh, give a quick plug to a colleague of mine. His name's Peter Thomas. Um, I went to a tech talk of his today about uh, a framework that he wrote called uh, Karate. Um, and you know, as as you guys all know, we're we're pretty big fans of testing. So what Karate is um, is a sort of an extension on top of Cucumber that is designed around um, HTTP endpoint testing. Uh, so what he did was he basically came up with a DSL that has a very clean given when then syntax that's all centered around HTTP verbs. So you say given URL this URL with path this path. When I do this verb, then um, you know you can assert on the status. You can you can assert. And what he built was a really very rich set of um, matchers that handle JSON natively. So you can build requests and responses through both a set of uh, smart wildcards as well as um, you know through you just you know JSON native. You can use uh, Cucumber's tabling to do data driven. Um, and, and all sorts of things, but I've started using it in my work. It's made uh, testing my microservices extremely easy, testing REST services extremely easy. And just in the last couple of weeks, he released a new feature that allows you to turn it around and use uh, Karate to generate um, like test doubles, um, basically mock services. So you can write contract tests against your uh, real unstable services, and then you can write a mock service using the same syntax that you're using to write your tests, and then you can point your contract tests at it, and then you have a reliable and stable mock, uh, mock service. So um, I highly encourage everybody to check it out. Um, it, is, um, it is hella easy. It interfaces with uh, existing Java classes. It's a very powerful, it's a growing framework, very popular on GitHub. Um, a lot of, uh, besides um, us at Intuit, a couple other uh, large companies are, are actually using it in their integrations and uh, it's it's getting some traction and I, I really like it. Um, yeah, that sounds, it sounds amazing just on a little description that you gave about it. <clears throat> I'm, I'm really looking forward to checking it out actually. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks, dude. Say, say the name again. It's called Karate. Uh, yeah, and if you Google for karate testing, you will uh, certainly find it. Yeah, that sounds interesting because one of the things that we're looking at in my current um, project is doing um, not only contract testing, but also uh, like having a, a stub server that we can use to, to test our microservices in isolation. And we're kind of all in on uh, pivotal technology. And so we're looking at maybe using um, Spring contract or cloud contract, I think it is. Um, but that sounds a little bit more interesting because like, I like I like Pivotal. I like what they do, but I don't like putting all of my eggs in their basket, even though it's a very comfortable basket. 
Um, so looking for something that can do what I need to do while also being somewhat independent would be nice. Yes, and this is exactly that. Um, yeah, I haven't actually, uh, I haven't used the test doubles feature in anger. It's, it's only about two weeks old. Um, but I, um, I have some services that my team supports, um, that have some downstream dependencies that are just not reliable. And so this is something that, uh, as soon as I get a a little bit of time to resolve some tech debt with my team, we're going to, we're going to pivot over to this so that we can isolate the services that we care about away from the stuff that, uh, is holding us back. Yeah, on my project, we're using PACT for contract testing, and you, there is the capability to turn around and use those PACTs as stubs, but it wasn't really designed for it, and uh, we've, we've run across uh, several issues uh, making that work well uh, and consistently, so I'd be interested in alternatives. Yeah, he's talking about, you know, he competes in large part with Wiremock. And, you know, again, in this tech talk I saw today, he sort of put up a Wiremock version of, of something, which is, you know, a Java-based framework. And it's 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 pretty, it's good, it's very popular, but it's wordy, it's verbose the way Java is. This is very, uh, it's very terse, um, it's very Englishy, and it, and it very clearly expresses what you want. Um, you can store things locally in it too, so you can actually have stateful, uh, mock services, which is pretty unusual. Uh, so it's it's a good framework. I, you guys should nice. check it so out. It's, ter- it's, it's terse, but it's still expressive. Did I, did I hear that right? Nice. Okay. Correct. Nice. Yes. All right. That is that's right. Yeah, and and it's because because it sort of sits on top of cucumber. And it's interpreted in a similar way. You don't have a lot of um, unnecessary dots and parentheses, and you know, it's it's you know words, and then it's JSON expressed in a in a much right. more JavaScript looking syntax. Uh, so it's you know non-quoted um, keys and then quoted values or or you know primitive type values um, and it just it's got a really cool matching syntax and and some data generation stuff it's it's a it's pretty impressive uh, what he's managed to put together so nice yeah it sounds really cool I look forward to checking it out um, so pivoting over to our um, our main topic of the evening um, wanted to talk about uh, metrics and the metrics that matter. Um, and sort of where this where this uh, came from as a as a hot topic in my mind is I ran again into the same situation, and I'm sure you guys have seen this before on various teams, and and I've seen this on a number of teams that I've been on. It again, it popped up again this week, which is uh, I was reviewing some test code, and I was looking at the tests, and I realized that uh, there were some tests that didn't have a lot of assertions in them. Uh, in fact, several tests that had no assertions in them. And they were just sort of running over code. And I grabbed some engineers and I asked, hey, what, you know, what are these tests about? And they said, well, we wanted to exercise the code and we are trying to get our code coverage metrics up and we wanted to get a higher code coverage. So we put these tests in, but it was hard to figure out what to assert on. So we just got these in here and our code coverage numbers went up. And, you know, and and I don't really fault them all that much for doing it because they they were getting some pressure that the code coverage numbers were low and they wanted them to be higher and they were doing it for the sake of getting the number up and they achieved that goal, um, which sort of brings me to the the real question I want to you know I want to to bring to the group is in in general and we'll we'll structure this a little bit in a couple of questions but what metrics motivate you and what metrics motivate you into good behavior and into bad behavior, right? And so what I've seen is in a, in a lot of cases, metrics motivating um, moti- voti- motivating bad or subversive behavior um, and not so much motivating uh, the good behavior that they're intended to motivate. So um, 
just sort of going around going around the group first of all uh, code coverage is is a is a frequent target and, and a, a hot button of mine um, do you guys have any thoughts on uh, what code coverage metrics mean have code coverage metrics ever driven you to good behavior have they ever driven you to bad behavior um, or do you you know generally just ignore them I'll go. No, I guess I'll go first. Oh, no, oh, please. No, 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 Mr. Spargo. James, no, please, James. No, Mr. Spargo, no, James. please. <laughs> James. James, I insist. No, James. No, James. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. If, if you, you insist, I insist you're, James. you're a yes. gentleman. You're a true gentleman. Um, <laughs> so, so for me, um, the co-coverage metrics have, have never really driven me towards bad behavior. One, because... At the organization I was at before I started my current job, but we didn't didn't practice unit testing, and so it was something that we never had to have in consideration for. You know, try as I might to, to introduce unit testing, it was something that never took hold, um, and so it wasn't ever a, an option there. Um, and then at my um, current job, I mean, it's it's definitely something that's varied, but generally, you know, from from project to project, from client to client, um, they're all different. I haven't had one that strictly said, "Hey, you must." Uh, have this level of code coverage because I, I think that that's really where you get yourself into trouble is when you have a, a mandate that says you must meet this level. Um, you really just have to kind of take it uh, more as, as organically test the code the way that you think that it needs to be tested, and and if you do that, then whatever number you hit is probably okay. Like you know, zero percent code coverage is not good, but one hundred percent is not necessary either. So it's 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 finding the the right number for you. Yep. I'll, Spargo rebuttal. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know about rebuttal, but I'll, I'll definitely pile on. Um, yeah. No. I, I I I absolutely agree with that last point of of the fact that zero code coverage is is bad, um, but 100% code coverage is not not the best thing either. Actually, I'd I'd even argue that that 100% code coverage is probably a smell. There's something going on there. Um, it's kind of one of those things. Um, if it sounds too good to be true, it usually is. Um, now, that being said, I do tend to aim for um, at 90 plus percent of code coverage. Um, and, and with that last little 10 percent or so, um, I kind of like manual tests at the top of the test pyramid. I will manually go in and look at those lines and be like, OK, those are while they're not actually covered in, in uh, the code coverage report. They they are covered by this test, or they do it, that that piece of functionality does get flexed when this happens or or that happens. So while it's not actually covered by a unit test, it is it is actually tested in some sort of functionality. Now that that takes into account that there are um, things in place such as like a proper pipeline um, or or some sort of build going on when when that piece of code actually happens. Um, but and I, I guess what I'm trying to get out of that is is when the the code coverage pieces that are showing a lack of of, of coverage, um, you, you got to go and manually inspect those and and, and then make a decision there. Um, <clears throat> I also think James kind of hit the nail on the head is is when you use um, your code coverage metrics for for gatekeeping, which I think is is a huge smell. Um, I've, I've, uh, unfortunately been a part of at least a couple of projects where that's been a problem. So yeah, to, to answer your question, um, uh, have, have, have metrics, uh, and I can't remember if it was, if it was metrics or code coverage specifically that drove me to good behavior or bad behavior. I would argue that, that gatekeeping on code coverage, um, actually drives to bad behavior. Um, and because, uh, so the example that you gave, whereas you had some developers, that, that actually flexed some code and you found some tests that didn't have any assertions in them. 
Um, uh, I, I kind of think that those are okay. Uh, okay, like barely okay. Um, bear with me here for a second. Um, because at the very least, they're, <laughs> they're flexing the code. Um, and the code, while it may not have any assertions to determine if it's behaving correctly or, or doing what it's supposed to do, at the very least, it doesn't blow up. Um, and you can like read into blow up as much as you want, but anyway, so I, I, I kind of think that's okay, but things that I think are, are bad are, um, and, and I've actually seen this in, in production tests is when, um, you've, you've got a unit test or, or any kind of test for that matter that says, Hey, if true, assert true else assert false. And, and that, that, that like really made me double take it. And I, and I think that's the kind of tests and that's the kind of codes that you get out of, um, out, out of using metrics as a gatekeeper. And I think that's a, which makes gatekeeping a bigger problem than, um, than, than metrics. Um, I've, I've actually, um, this is going to sound bad, but I don't look at code coverage anymore. It's, it's rare that I actually look at code coverage anymore. Um, and, and the reason for that is because I, I'm, I'm usually familiar with, um, uh, like the areas of the code that I'm testing. And it, it to me, I'm, I'm not using, I don't use code coverage as, as like a feel good measure, a feel good metric. I use code coverage or I use tests as, um, as, as a safety net to make sure that I'm, I'm not introducing bugs or introducing problems. And so if, if I'm re if I'm wanting to refactor or adjust a piece of code, I'm not going to go look at the, the code coverage to see if it's got test to see if there's, um, test coverage. I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to comment out a line of code that looks essential to the algorithm and then run the, the, the fastest tests that I can and see um, and see if anything fails. And if nothing fails, then I need to get some kind of code. I need to get some kind of test on there or something to, to demonstrate that, that that line of code is actually needed. Um, so let me let me jump in. Yeah, please. Because agreement is boring. Yeah. So let me let me throw a, let me throw a counterpoint in there. Um, a couple of different counterpoints actually, and I, I want to hold that one, and I want to go back to the one we said earlier. Yeah. I totally believe one hundred in one hundred percent test coverage. I think you absolutely should have one hundred percent test coverage. Uh, I think everybody should mail all their money to me. <laughs> Not going to happen. So do the, 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 maybe the giant caveat there is I do not think that you should go for one hundred percent unit test coverage as we generally think of unit test, even though there's not an exact definition. Okay. So let's just as go. Okay. If your tests are really small on, you know, at the class level or the method level, that you know, if you define those as unit tests, I don't think you should have 100% coverage on those. I do, though, think you should not ship a line of code unless you've executed it in a test. I think it would be nonsensical to say, I'm going to write this code and then ship it to somebody else to use, and I haven't run it to see if it works. Now, you can do that with a manual test, sure, but the moment you do that, what happens the next time you need to change something? So I would say absolutely shoot for 100% automated test coverage. Now the problem is we rarely test, we rarely run coverage on anything other than our unit tests. 
And there are some good reasons for that. It's really easy to set up coverage on unit tests. It's often really not easy to yes. set up unit tests on any other kind of tests. Because you know, you're setting up coverage on a contract test. Well, I've, my app is running separately from my test. It's a separate process. It may be in a separate container or a separate machine or who knows what. And getting to that and setting it up in such a way that I can record coverage on it is really difficult. Can, can you even do that? And what would be the practicality? What would be the practicality of actually setting up code coverage on contract tests? So why not? Why? So let me let me put it. Let me back up a second. So okay. Uh, how do you how, how do you have any do you have any knowledge or you have any assurance in your current system? Let's imagine that it has contract tests, which it does or not. It has a contract test, but do you do you have any assurance that actually all of the endpoints that you call are actually covered with a contract? No, of course not. But wait, wait, wait. From 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 whose perspective? From the from the consumer or or, or from the producer? Yes. So assume you assume you're the, you are the consumer and you're writing contract against right. Uh, so we were we were sailing along just fine with the sort of we were using our contracts as also as stubs, and so because of that we kind of felt safe. Oh, because we're using contracts as stubs, if we don't you know if we don't write a contract for something, the stub won't be there. We'll run the we'll run our user journey test. It will break because the stub isn't there, and that's good enough. What we found recently is that. We, because our app is trying to be robust, there are a number of calls that are not critical to the user journey that the app will essentially ignore if they fail. It'll just show, you know, stub data, or it'll basically show blank data or whatever. And so we had not written contracts for those. And the user journey test was passing, but we were missing out on test coverage. We had no, we had nothing telling us that the contract, the, the endpoint we had written to talk to an external service actually ran the way it was supposed to. Now, if we had coverage on the part of the code that I, that calls those things, we would have known that. Yeah, I think that's a fair point because one of the things that that I've run into is um, is mostly around error handling in that same situation, right? It's pretty easy to write a contract test for the behavior you expect. It's a lot harder to write a contract test for the behavior that you don't normally expect that isn't in your mainline, and. And so, yeah, if you don't have any kind of coverage metrics over your um, over your error handling code, which is usually which are usually absent because they're not present in the stubs and they're not present in in any of the any of the testing you've got, um, you you don't know what your application is going to do. And those are usually the things that people end up finding in either in manual tests or when you stand up an EDE environment and one day something breaks or some service is down or the things that you find out in production. So I buy that, but, but sort of taking a step back to, um, to maybe to, to Spargo's question, which is how do you, so I agree that you should have that. I actually uh, agree with your assertion that we should have hundred percent some coverage, but how do you measure how do you measure that? And especially, how do you measure your contract coverage in the in the situation that I just raised, which is the the unexpected, right? So, if we're talking about metrics, we should be talking about things that you can or how you're going to measure them if you're going to use them to to drive your behavior. Right. Yeah. So, coverage code coverage metrics will tell you whether you've tested the behavior that you've coded for. It will not test tell you if you've coded for all of the possible behaviors that exist in production. Right. Right. Like so, and that's and that's a key point. Absolutely, you know, you, 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 all of our, you know, if you're using if you're using say Java, um, code coverage is not going to tell you because it can't that you haven't handled the possibility of a null pointer exception here. I mean, it could, but then eighty percent of our code would throw an error saying you haven't handled the possibility of a null pointer exception. Right? It just you you can't possibly 
cover all those things. Right. And that's, and that's what kind of static analysis tools try to fill that gap, but they usually create more noise than signal. And, uh, and I've never found them to be particularly helpful. So, so let's, let's jump for that back to, so you just made that point of, you know, Hey, there's, there's a lot of noise here. Maybe it's not the most useful way to go about this. Spargo said the same thing about, about code coverage. Hey, there are other ways to figure out if the code you're looking at is tested. I will say, I agree with both of those points. I have certainly, you know, code coverage. It's certainly easy uh, if you if you are working in a code base on a regular basis, you often have a good feeling for what's tested and what's not, and what what not only what's tested and what's not, but what's uh, more critical to test and what's not, and and that kind of thing. Um, I will say though, as a as a consultant who both switches projects a lot, and so I'm often trying to ramp up on a new project that I've never seen before, and also as a team lead who is often working with people who are not that familiar with testing or who don't have that intuitive feel for this is tested and important to test and this isn't, um, I do find coverage to be useful in that sense. I can go to into Codebase and run code coverage and say, this whole section is missing. Probably, I mean, maybe it was written before our team knew anything about testing, before we'd ever set anything up. Maybe it was written by a particular person who thought that TDD was, you know, communist and didn't want to <laughs> didn't want to deal with it. Uh, but, but these things do have, or maybe it was written by me in a hurry, right? Somebody came and said, "We have to have this tomorrow. You have to do it now." And I, forgetting that testing actually makes me faster, not slower, decide, "Oh, I'll just pound the code out real quick." And then I do that and I throw it in production. I'll come back and write the test later. And of course, I never do. Right, so I I find coverage useful for those scenarios. I, what I don't find coverage metrics useful for, and I'm, I think this is more what you're talking, what you were talking about initially, Kevin, was what I don't find useful for is uh, at the end of every story, let's go check the coverage numbers to see if the code that was written for this story has has tests. Um, if you are having to drive behavior like that, what it means is the team doesn't buy into the concept of tests, and that's fine. Lots lots of teams are in that position. Coverage metrics may help you there, but they also may, as we've discussed, drive the wrong behavior. I have certainly seen coverage numbers drive the wrong behavior in, in a manner very similar to Kevin to what you were describing. doesn't mean they can't be used well, but it's just so easy for them to be misused that it's hard to recommend them for that purpose. But I do think they serve a lot of purpose for, uh, again, ramping up and helping you explore and, and understand the state of the code base as a whole. Okay. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a really good point. Um, and uh, does anybody else have any any thoughts? Otherwise, um, I want to move on to, yeah, a, to no, another I, one of my I've favorite metrics. I've got a metrics. quick one, and this it, and this kind of um, kind of goes is is kind of like overarching on all of them, and, and it's it's because I, I the the whole point of of or the whole topic of of uh, metrics driving bad behavior is what kind of brings this up is that as soon as uh, I forget who said this, I was not the person who said it originally, but um, uh, as soon as metrics become a goal. Then that metric is no longer a good metric, and I and I think um, in combination with 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 that point, uh, um, you've got to look at a at a great number of different metrics uh, uh, to actually get like good data out of out of what you're trying to analyze. Um, and that's all I all I wanted to throw in there because I think that's that's the part that drives the bad behavior is is that, that metrics are getting used as gatekeepers, and at that point. Um, at, at, at that point, all of those metrics go out the window. Okay, that's a really good. That's actually a really good point too. Is and and let me play back what I'm hearing is that what we're saying is, yeah, if the metric becomes the goal, the metric becomes the gatekeeper. Then it really represents that that whatever the underlying behavior that we're trying to drive is 
isn't really fully bought in and we're trying to sort of coerce people into a behavior that they're not that they're not interested in doing naturally or that they don't that they're not fully bought in on and so and so the metric has become more of a, a bureaucratic thing rather than a way to help uh, the team uh, you know achieve something that the, that they're really going for an independent goal um, and sort of along those lines then what uh what what is something that is sort of a, a a worthwhile measure, um, just throwing out some, some thoughts, um, you know, things around like value measurements or the effects of the application, um, seem to be the thing that, that I try to target. And it's one that I've had a hard time actually putting a number on. And so I'd like to, to talk for a minute about something that, that I've thought about in terms of, um, in terms of stories and features and the way that we do work. Um, we, we put estimates on things that are, you know, uh, in, in agile, our, our points are related to relative complexity, um, but really ostensibly are, are related to time and effort. Right. Um, but one of the things that I've often wondered about is if there was a way that we could put a value measurement on a piece of work and say that this work for some, for some measurement that we're taking either, whether it's, you know, users where you convert revenue gain, um, you know, or some kind of general user happiness metric. Um, could we put a number on a piece of work and say, this work is worth five happies, right? Or, or, $80 per user or whatever, and then use that as a way to judge, to decide, um, what work we should do, and then sort of reflect back on that and use that as a measurement of how good we are at estimating value. Is that, is that first of all, so my two questions are, first of all, is that even a metric? And secondly, is that something that would be a useful way to make good decisions using data? I think it could be. I Frankly, I've always been a little surprised that agile methodologies, methodologies in general um, focus a lot on uh, determining effort and for various ways of doing that. And, and you're right. Effort ultimately translates to time. Um, but, but focus very little on determining value. And in, we talk, you know, the whole team is supposed to be involved in estimating and there's a whole process around it. There's, there's dozens of processes around it. Um, but the, but the, you know, cost, uh, what work we decide to do is always a cost effort trade-off or sorry, a cost value trade-off, right? It's going to cost us much to do it in time or money or whatever. But it's going to give us this value, and so the, the heavier thing may be worth doing first if it's going to give us more value. But the value part is usually sort of just, oh well, the product owner will tell us that, right? Like uh, he'll or we'll we'll tell him how how hard everything is, and then he'll go back and decide, you know, well, well I, because I care about these things this much, I'll put them in this order. Why? And I, and I sort of get it because of when agile methodologies were sort of, sort of first becoming in vogue time estimation was the big thing. And so that was the, that was the thing that people didn't really like, but it was also very heavy and, and took up a lot of time. And so people were trying to solve for that. Um, but I think the, the other side of the equation absolutely is relevant. And I would love to see more research and, and you know, uh, recommendations around how you factor that in that isn't just gut feel. Because most of the time it does feel like gut feel. Now, just like story cost estimate, or, you know, uh, estimates, point estimates or time estimates or whatever, you could easily go too far in that direction and become too enamored with your own data and you know, try, to get, try to measure everything down to the dollar and, and miss the bigger picture. But uh, I, don't, I don't think that means it wouldn't be worth trying. 
Yeah, like that's an interesting question, and I think it's it's hard, um, and I think we all understand that it's hard. Um, it's it's hard certainly to balance the trade off between like the amount of time it'll take to, to deliver something versus the amount of value that it'll it'll gain. Um, and so it's kind of noodling around different ideas on on how you can do that. Um, something that came to mind kind of immediately is like we we have the the idea of using like a b testing for for testing hypothesis um and like that's that's great um and certainly it's not done uh enough so like that might be part of it is you have your hypothesis um you come up with the uh, least complex way of demonstrating that value you run your experiment and then you you see what you get uh but like it's hard to to figure out how you determine the value is it just looking at like bounce rates is it looking at revenue per customer uh, like it all depends on the context and so like i don't think there's a one size fits all answer but like that's that's something that jumped out to me most immediately is you you could write something that's like super hacky uh maybe even um something that that involves actually manually doing something in the in the back end like kind of a wizard of oz sort of uh style thing um which which works uh, uh, but definitely not something you want to rely on certainly for for a long period of time but you know just just make some something that can let you uh, test your hypothesis very very quickly and and use that and then if if it ends up being with the amount of effort to do it for real um is is uh, very high then you can make that determination on whether or not you want to do it but you know like it's it's a really hard hard question yeah and it's something that i think i i want to say that it was in the lean enterprise book where they talked about after you release something measuring you know the impact to customers and using that to judge what to do next i think one of the hard things is that as we try to release features quickly and we try to move in a fast and agile way some of those some of that data has a long tail right like if i were you know if i were in you know some kind of e-commerce site and i wanted to see if a particular implementation or rewards program or whatever move the needle on my sales. It's not something that I can I can put out there, look at it for 24 hours and say, yep, that did something or that didn't something, right? I need probably a, a, a you know a calendar quarter's worth of data. Whereas like maybe a Facebook or somebody else who's who's got a much higher hit ratio and a much lower um, kind of like cost per transaction or, or a different impact per transaction might be able to measure those things at a, at a pace that matches their development pace. So one of those things with sort of value measurements is they, they sometimes, you know, and, and like in an industry that I'm in right now, we've got an annual cycle. And quite frankly, any change we make, it takes about a year, right? We have to get through a tax season to find out whether or not that change had a measurable impact on our customers because we have very specific times of years when different activities take place. So I wonder how you kind of reconcile those measurements um, against like a rapidly developing code base uh, when you when you don't have um, when essentially your customer feedback loops are relatively long. Um, okay, so one other one that that one other thing that that came to mind that I don't think uh, any discussion of agile and metrics would be complete without bringing up. Um, and David, this one this one goes to you. If you can quote our old friend Brett on this one, uh, I'd like to talk about velocity. I don't think I remember a Brett. Quote you don't remember Brett? Quote. Oh man, I remember Brett. I don't remember Brett's velocity. Brett's Brett's velocity quote is velocity is not a metric. <laughs> Oh, I don't. Know I that. actually freaking love that one. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, and and Brett's point was, and and this is, I'd like to raise this, and I I fear that we're probably going to have another one of our typical violent agreements, but 
Um, I, uh, the, his, his premise was that people treat velocity as a metric, but velocity is not a metric as it is a measure of historical behavior that has some predictive value. And it sort of goes back to what we said earlier about when a, when a metric becomes a goal, then it's probably not the right way to motivate a team. And his point was that velocity, when it's used as a metric, tends to be your velocity is currently 20, 25 would be better. Let's see what we can do to get it up to 25. And instead, velocity being a, a historical view and a predictor says the team's velocity is 20. Therefore, the team's velocity is 20. Therefore, we can expect 20 from them in the next sprint. And it's not something to improve on, but it's just something to be aware of. Do you guys buy into that or do you feel like velocity is something that you can look at and 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 try to improve on or try to move on on the on the premise that you know we are always trying to self improve right and i feel like i've had teams so i i i i hear what what Brett through me is saying. Um, but at the same time, I also feel like I've had teams that are not operating their potential and that, that saying increase your velocity is the most useful and measurable way to say, measure how well they are improving their speed. What do you, what, what do we think about that? The concept of velocity as a metric? No doubt. I, yeah. All right. So I, I don't know. I I I, I kind of think velocity is is about as tangible as, as an estimate. And 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 what I really hate about agile um, and agile software development, um, particularly agile with a capital A, um, is that that people hear estimates and they think they're concretions. It's like you know what I I estimate so that they they like people get pushed into this like bad corner of hey estimate and tell me how long this is going to take. Well, first of all, there's your big problem because your estimate shouldn't be on how much, how long it's going to take. It should be on an effort. And uh, and what what people hear is like, oh, okay, so this should take me three days, and that's an estimate. And and people hear estimate and they think concretions. And velocity is kind of the same thing. Now, talking to like actually talking about like the example that you provided, where you think where where you said that, hey, I I, I think this team. Um, isn't really developing their full potential. Now, granted, they might not be kicking out work or or their estimate points or whatever um, to 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 what their potential is. But I, I would actually have a look and and see what they're what they're doing. Um, if so, the the whole judgment of the team not living up to their potential might be one thing. Um, and if 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 someone if a manager or someone actually has that opinion of a team, I would probably take a more granular look at what the hell that team is doing during the day. Are are they are they actually showing up and working for eight hours a day? Are they actually working for eight hours a day, or do they have things like CNN or Sportsnet or shopping on Amazon for half the day? I've 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 worked with people who do this, and they call it an eight-hour day, and it's like, dude, you you're 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 not even thinking about the problem. Um, now I I I I believe in like actually thinking in the background and, and, and while you're kind of distracted. But, you know, when you're spending like three-fourths of your day on Amazon shopping for stuff, you're not working. Your butt's in that seat, but you're not working. Um, so, I mean, yeah. So Right. But 
But so if you so if you observe that behavior though, is it is it not useful to measure what the current team output is and then measure what the future team output is to give the team a concrete anchoring and changing those behaviors? Or do you think that it just a, a continuous objective measure of that is I, I, I uh, so I, I don't know. That I, I I think that's a challenging question to ask I, I, or, or to answer. Um but I, I guess what I'm getting at is is I wouldn't look at if, if I see on, on the flip side of that, if, if I see a team who is at their desk and, and or, or wherever, but they are actually actively working the entire time, every time you go and check in on them, you see them like actively working on a current problem as, as opposed to like goofing off. And, and this is the amount of work that they're getting done. Then I, I, I kind of think that the opinion of this team not living up to their potential might be inaccurate or there might be some, I guess what I'm getting at is I, I think there's some other blocker that's out there. That's, that's not allowing this team to live up to their potential. And I, I think that there, there needs to be more introspection into why, what that blocker is and, and how to, how to resolve that blocker. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. That's a good point. All right, David, open the floodgates. What have you got? So, so knowing Brett, when he said velocity is not a metric, he had a very specific definition of metric yes. in mind. Um, probably he could have quoted it from multiple dictionaries. With, with, page, with page, chapter, and verse, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, with no doubt. Um, when I think about what a metric is, uh, or you know, sort of like if you think of a standard, you know, what, what would the dictionary say a metric is? Right, a metric is something you can compare to a standard for a comparison. Right, you know, if, if whether that's a, a distance measurement, right, or or a time measurement, or a volume measurement, or um, or whatever, it's it, it's um, it's a metric. I can, I can say I went this far. I can compare that. I can compare that to somebody else's metric and say this one was greater than that one. In that sense, yes, velocity does not make a good metric. It's not something that you can create a standard for outside of a team. It's not something you can compare across teams. Um, and and the state. While people often say that when they say, "Yeah, I know I can't create." Velocity, compare velocity across teams there's another little phrase uh, that i learned from another thought worker um, that says teams are immutable by which that means when you take a person away from a team or when you add a person to a team i love that you don't yeah. have the same that's team right. anymore yeah. you have a yep. completely that's different a great, team. that's a great that's a great point same members. Yeah. but it's a different team which means you cannot compare the velocity before you added jane to the velocity after you added jane that's two different teams two different velocities and when you get down to that level it starts to sound like boy velocity really is useless and Kind of, yeah, which I think was Brett's point. Now, that being said, it's, I should say it's useless in, in, in sort of the long term. Trying to track velocity um, and particularly trying to manipulate it over any significant amount of time is pretty darn useless. Um, that being said, I don't think it is at all useless in the short term. Uh, I think, to, you know, Kevin, you made a great point. We are always trying to improve ourselves. We can and should ask, is this the best we can do? And see if there's something we can do to adjust either our environment or our behavior or something to see if we can improve. And then we need some way of asking the question, okay, did that thing we tried actually help? And velocity is the thing we have. Sorry, velocity is one of the things we have. It's not the only thing. Velocity is one of the things we have to say, did that help or did it hurt? Or, you know, what should we, what should we do? Should we try something different? I think when used in that way, I, and, and if you take that in the sense of a metric of I can take a, take a measurement now and then do it again later and, and compare them you know, to each other, I think it's totally reasonable there. I absolutely agree with all of the, when you start trying to, to micromanagement or, or, you know, set standards across teams or, you know, management says that, that 
four pairs ought to be able to complete 20 points in a sprint and why are you guys only completing 18 like that completely dysfunctional behavior yeah. at that point there's something um, I, I remember something I from our past about 25 points stories, sprint. five points <laughs> yeah something something I, I can remember that too um but but clearly like not at all useful in that sense but it is absolutely useful in the local sense now i i one, I want to reiterate, it's, velocity is not the only measure. And if your velocity goes down but your code quality goes up, that may be a good thing. Depends on what you're optimizing for right now. And I think one thing most teams utterly fail to do is talk about on a regular basis, what are we optimizing for right now? Are we optimizing for long-term maintainability? Are we optimizing for the ability to ramp up new team members? Are we op- optimizing for the ability to transition this to a different team? Are we optimizing for we need to get some features out right now? Those are all different things with different standards, and they're going to produce different me- they're going to produce different metrics. Your code quality is going to go up or down as measured by all the different ways you can measure code quality. Your velocity is going to go up and down. Um, you you should understand what you're optimizing for before you can try to evaluate the metric. But um, in particular, I think the dangerous thing is if you're in a scenario kind of like you guys were describing. Hey, it feels like the team is underperforming. Right? It's not a matter of man- management says, it's not a matter of we haven't hit some magical number, but it just it feels like the team is underperforming. Let's try to use velocity as a way of increasing that. In my experience, there's two reasons teams are underperforming. Either there is an individual or, an in- or may possibly multiple individuals on the team who are underperforming themselves or through their behavior are causing other people to underperform. Or the whole team is underperforming because of environmental issues it is rare in my experience to just have a whole team of bad apples it's possible that it just doesn't happen very often most of the time it's environmental or there's a small number of bad apples in either case chances of being able to use velocity to drive change are really low if it's a bad apple or or a couple you need to deal with those people and velocity probably is not going to tell you that and it's probably not going to be a particularly helpful way of indicating change if it's environmental again the chances of you making environmental change in a way that is visible on velocity, given the environmental change change since it take a while, not terribly useful. Um, so I would only use velocity from the stance of, hey, we think we're you know we're doing all right. We got, we work okay as a team, but we would like to be able to do better. We want to make some changes, measure them. We'll use velocity as one way of you know testing whether whether our changes are having an effect. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. James Thomas, do you have anything you want to weigh in on velocity? I think that David covered um, kind of most of what I what I feel, which is that yeah, I think it, it mostly amounts to what you're trying to optimize for, um, and like those kind of metrics are valuable, but um, like normally the perception of, of velocity tends to be not not really optimizing for anything, but using using it as a predictor of when you'll be quote unquote done, and I I more and more think that that's not very valuable, uh, especially these days, because it seems like we've, we've shifted more to a model of um, evolving applications and services that, that, that never really are done. Um, and so, like, deciding that to, to, to base your, your, your metric on when you're going to be done doesn't make sense because you're never done. It's, it's just a question of uh, when you will get this particular thing um, finished. And uh, yeah, I just don't think that, that velocity really uh, cuts it. it. It's looking at or trying to look at more of a, a higher level approach of how you are, how you're doing holistically. And I don't, I don't think it does it well. And so if you're trying to figure out when you can, you know, release a feature to a particular user, um, 
or to users, then uh, I think that you can do it better either by um, figuring out about how much um, how much work it's going or not work, but figuring out the different uh, facets of the feature, figuring out uh, how many of them um, you have satisfied, and then you know once you have completed all of the the various features of the the, the overall uh, thing, then then that's when you're done and you go after that. Um, but yeah, it, it just seems like the 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 temptation is always use it to, to decide when you're done. And I, I just don't think that makes sense anymore. You know, putting on the, the program manager, project manager hat that I've, that I've been coerced into wearing on more than one occasion, the, what I found useful about velocity was basically being able to say at sprint planning, this is how much we should try to take on. And sometimes it enables, it enables if you have a very healthy backlog to, to communicate outwards and say, you know, this, you know, this next sprint, we're probably going to do these things. And the next two or three sprints, these are probably going to be the things that get picked up. And in, so if you want something different between now and, and the end of three sprints from now, now's the time to, to in, in, insert it into the, into the pipeline, because that's, this is when the stuff that we know about is going to get, get finished. But I agree with you, uh, James, that the, yeah, the idea of done, right. Is, you know, I think that there were a lot of organizations that tried to um, basically back into waterfall and, and say, here's our here's our predefined scope and our scope is this many points and our velocity is this many points. Therefore, it's going to take this long to finish this project. And I just, I don't think that was, I don't think that was ever actually the right thing to do. And I think that time has proven um, more and more that that's, that that's a wrong thing to do. So that's not really what that, what that measurement's for. Okay. So, um, so kind of last thing then, let's go um, maybe just a quick lightning round um, around the room one more time to see, is there any other way that you measure or anything that you feel like you've measured consistently in a project that has made you a better developer? Yeah, I'll jump on this one because I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do this one quickly either. Sorry. I, I, know, I know we're running long in the tooth, but there, there's, there's one metric there's there's one metric I've I've heard skirted around, but nobody's ever really addressed, and that's freaking time. Um, no, I, like so, what's time is actually like ha, it, it out of my last handful of projects become one of my most important metrics because one thing that I don't want to waste, one thing that I don't want to spend a lot of is time. Um, my 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 current and newest project, unfortunately, it it takes um. It, it takes about an hour for me to run just the integration tests. I, I, and from what I understand, and now granted, I've only been on this project for a couple of weeks, but um, it, it, it takes a, a few hours for me to run all these functional tests. And, and to me, that's like way too long for, for the whole feedback cycle. Um, and, and time is incredibly important to me because of that feedback cycle. I, I, I want to know, hey, this change that I made, what's that going to break? And, and I want that. I want to know that answer as as quickly as possible. That's one metric that I haven't heard us talking about yet. So ironically, you want to spend more time talking about doing things faster. <laughs> yes, I want to. I want to spend more time talking about time because time is what's time and the time and the time on the you know that one time. Fair enough. Um, yeah, not to okay. That's fair. Not to put too fine a point on it, but is it actually time that you're looking at, or is it efficiency? Right? Is it is it the time that something takes, or is it the sort of time value and frequency of execution triangle that we're really trying to optimize for? 
So yeah, it's it, so time is the actual metric. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It's it's the the value. Um, it, it's the value and 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 efficiency and those other things that that we're trying to uh, to optimize for. Um, to try to get the information back. Uh, to try to get the the feedback and information back to us. The that we can actually consume and do something about. That's what I'm trying to. Go I will say I, I don't I I don't know that that distinction necessarily. Like so yes, I absolutely care both about the time that my tests take to run and the value that I get out of them in terms of confidence and whatever else. But I, I don't tend to, I, I don't usually find that those two are in opposition to each other. I don't find that I have to optimize one over the other. I have to make a choice. I can improve, I can improve them each individually and the overall efficiency goes up. Sure. But I absolutely care about time independently because it's not like, Oh, well the tests are really slow, but they give me a lot of value. So it's fine. No, I, I want them to be fast. Okay, great. Good point. Good point. You guys know that I'm a big fan of Gradle, um, and, and I'll say the, the, the reason among uh, – there's a couple of them, but the biggest one by far is, uh, is speed. Um, I, I care very, very much about how long it takes to run a you know, Gradle W build. Um, I, I, want, you know, I want that to be in, in seconds, preferably minutes, you know, a handful of minutes max, um, because I, I care very much about, again, you're talking about cycle time, right? And, and yes, how many tests you have to run to get the confidence you need to be able to move forward with what you're ever doing depends very much on your test suite and your project and your setup. But regardless of where you fall in all that, pure time matters a lot. I want to, what I don't want to do and what I find frequently on teams who don't measure this is they, they, find the, they go outside their own process. Hey, we have this awesome build script. That can do that can set up and build everything and test everything and assemble it and, and publish it somewhere. Yeah, but running it takes half an hour and that's too long. So what I instead do is I go into my IDE and I pick the handful of tests that I think are important and I run those. Yeah, those passes probably fine. So I'll push. Oops, see, I broke. Why? Oh, well, that test that takes a long time, it broke this time. Yeah, go okay. So they, it, I so I, I bring that up specifically. It's it's the it's when things become long enough that you want to break out of their process. Right. The whole concept of a hotfix which thankfully has become less frequent, or I, I hear about it a lot less recently because we focused on you know, path to production and pipelines. But the whole concept is, hey, our normal release process takes two days. We need to get this, this we had a critical bug, we have to get it out tomorrow, we can't go through our normal release process, we'll go through our hotfix process, which is a completely different process with a completely different set of uh, you know, gates and approvals and so forth um, because of time, because time matters that much. So we find ourselves frequently at all levels breaking out of our own process because our processes take too long. And when we break out of our processes, we create even more problems for ourselves. So I am very, I am, I'm totally with you, James. I'm very interested in the concept of time um, on its own at all levels of development and, and software development process. Um, and, I, and I find that it's, it's hard, unlike some of the other metrics we've talked about, rarely do you find that like, well, yeah, that was faster, but who cares? Like certainly over-optimization, like optimizing too quickly for performance or whatever is certainly a thing. If you are actually sacrificing other parts of your system like quality, reability, et cetera, or security um, for the sake of performance, then yeah, you've got to keep that in mind. But generally speaking, investments into making things faster are, will return. I mean, you, you make that time up over the course of, you know. Definitely. I, I, and I think, I, I think one of the things that uh, just kind of uh, to, to tag on to the last bit that you said, I, I mean, as far as like um, when people are like optimizing for the wrong thing, um, I, I think that there, there's a big distinction between premature optimization and, and actual optimization when, when the time is ready. I mean, definitely make, make things work, then make things better, then make things fast. 
Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I think we should probably go back to the point um, earlier in our conversation this evening um, where violent disagreement is boring. So, David, you're wrong. Time is incredibly important. Excellent. All right. James, Thomas, anything different than time as a metric that motivates you? Or do you want to jump on the time bandwagon? Because uh, they're, they're selling me pretty good. I'm, I'm there. I mean, I was already kind of on the time bandwagon, um, and so, but I, I think I kind of agree with your your distinction of it's not it's not so much time; it's more efficiency. Like it's it's trying to figure out like what is the the theoretical minimum amount that I could bring this thing down to, like the minimum amount of running time, and then compare that against the effort that it takes to get there, and trying to find some kind of a happy medium where you can make it. Um, as fast as you reasonably can while putting in a reasonable amount of effort. I think that's that's definitely valuable. Um, and I don't I don't have any other particular metrics that I look like. Like I, I like things like from from an operational perspective of like, you know, mean time to recovery. I think that's super valuable. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean I, I think that one's honestly kind of self explanatory in, in how valuable it is. So I don't know if I need to really sell it. I don't know. I I don't know if we have time, but I I think that's a I think that's a great one that we haven't talked about. We've talked about mostly development time metrics. We haven't talked much about runtime or operational time metrics, but I think mean time to recovery is a huge one. Yeah. So, well then, then let's bring that up. So what, so mean time to recovery is a relatively new concept. Uh, mean time between failure is one that I've heard much more often. And then um, uptime, how many nines in your uptime um, are, are other ways that I've heard to measure the same thing. You bring up mean time to recover. Why is that the one that is meaningful to you? And, and why is that valuable? Yeah, so like measuring the the mean time between failure, uh, I think is fine, but it it kind of puts um, stability on this sort of unreasonable pedestal. Like you you make the assumption that eventually you could get to a point where you would never have downtime, and I don't I don't think that's the right way to look at it. You have to uh, expect that downtime is going to happen and make your uh, your 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 stuff resilient enough that you can bring it back very quickly. Um, I think that's the more pragmatic approach. It, it, it accepts that downtime is going to happen. And instead of trying to focus on eliminating every possible edge case, every possible crash, everything you possibly could, instead focus on making it so that when you do go down, because you will, then uh, you can get back up quickly and hopefully with the minimum amount of disruption. Like so, that's that's why I like it the the most. I think it's just it's a more realistic way of looking at dealing with um, instability. What I find interesting is that last point you threw in there. Hopefully with minimal disruption. So like we talk about mean time between failure. Okay, then you talk about mean time to recovery. Both of those are sort of measures measures of like sort of overall efficiency, right? The the less the f- less frequently you go down, and the more quickly you can get back up when you do go down. The overall, you know, higher your overall, you know, uptime is, right? If you're, if you're measuring your uptime, but there's a huge difference between being down. Uh, you know, my my uh, office, my, my my headquarters phone number wasn't visible on my contact page versus I was down. My my uh, you couldn't log into the system to check on the status of your current orders versus my website. It won't load. Like you get a you get a DNS resolution error on my website, right? I mean, those are completely different things. And 
if you're if you if your mean time between failure is low and that's bad, but your failures really don't matter very much, then who cares, right? So I, I think one thing that most companies, many companies who are metrics driven, who look at things like these, it's not they're they're good metrics. It's good to track them, but if you're not also considering the severity of things, you could easily again find yourself optimizing. I think that's I think that's a good point, and interestingly, that all relates back to time, which feels like um, in conclusion. Uh, the thing that we're optimizing for is maximum time. Um, I think with that, we'll kind of wrap up. I think this is a great conversation. I'm sure that there are many other metrics and that, you know, as soon as we get off the line, we're going to think of a few more. Uh, this is something that can probably come back again. But it sounds like, you know, and just to wrap up, it sounds like we are, we're interested in time. A lot of the traditional metrics um, have some value in, in certain local spaces, but um, you need to be cautious because everything can be abused and at the point that you're abusing them or using them as a goal instead of a measure and a way to improve, then they've probably lost some meaning and you need to reevaluate where your team's at. So um, I think we'll leave it there. And uh, thank you guys all for, uh, for being on. James Thomas, thank you very much. No, Mr. thank Spargo, you. Mr. Spargo, thank you. Of course, anytime. And Mr. Nelson, thanks for joining ah, us. Ha, ha, ha. Fargo, <laughs> you stole my line. All right. So and everybody who listened to this far, uh, thank you for sticking with us. Again, please uh, rate us in the iTunes store if you get a chance. Also, Brett, if you were for some reason listening and made it this far, uh, nothing but love and respect. And uh, <laughs> hi, Brett. And, uh, hi, and Brett. Uh, hopefully uh, we can talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everybody. Good night. <laughs>